Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 249 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, maybe joined by Ed later in the episode, and producer Jeremy is off doing other things. So, but I am I am not flying solo right now. Um, thankfully, uh, I'm very happy to have back on the show for uh, the at least the third time, maybe the fourth time, uh, David Banks, um, a longtime friend of the show. Uh, and this time, you know, not, not just to shoot the shit, but uh, to also promote and talk about David's excellent new book um, that, is com- that is coming out very soon. Everyone should grab a copy of The City Authentic, How the Attention Economy Builds Urban America. Um, I, I have... Uh, read the book cover to cover. It is a great read, a very interesting read, and it brings together um, a lot of a lot of different interests um, of mine. Uh, and a lot of things that we haven't talked a ton about on TMK are kind of holdovers from like doing my dissertation in urban geography and smart cities and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have David on to kind of bring that stuff back in. We're ba- folks, we're going to talk about the growth machine. We're going to talk about the rent gap. We're going to, this is going to be a, a, a David Harvey, Neil Smith style seminar. Uh, and it's going to be good. <laughs> we're, do, we're, we're, hitting, we're doing all the hits. All the hits. That's right. All That's the Marxist right. geography. All the Marxist geography hits. Uh, not enough Marxist geography on TMK. So this is this is going to fill a, a good gap here for us. So David, thanks for one. Thanks for coming on, and two. Thanks for writing such a, a fascinating book. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is um, it's a it's a pleasure. Uh, I think last time I was on here, uh, we were reading uh, uh, autonomous technology. We were, we were mm. reading uh, Langdon Winter stuff. I think that I think that was the last time I was on. So now now we get to read a uh, uh, my book. Yeah, so it's a to- totally different book reading. Uh, That's uh, right. That. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now we can read the good stuff. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You, you said it. <laughs> no, this is, it's a, it's a great book. Um, I've, I've heard, like, I know your log line for the book, which I think is, is fascinating. We can kind of get, maybe get into it through that is like, you're kind of looking at the ways in which cities have to act like social media influencers and reality TV stars uh, in, in the kind of attention economy as it exists today in order to do anything like, you know, uh, grow, uh, you know, perpetuate the, uh, the infinite cycle of capital accumulation, like all these things that cities are kind of created uh, and meant to do, which is be places for capital to invest, places for capital to grow, places for capital to consolidate their power, and also maybe places where people live and access the essential services that they need for that life and so on. But those things are kind of secondary to serving the uh, the needs of capital. Um, but in the economy as it exists today, like cities have to, uh, their, their strategies for this have to change as the broader material conditions change. Um, and, and now we very much live in this like attention economy where it's really all about the vibes, man. You know, it's like the, the <laughs> vibes based economy. Yeah. We have a vibes based economy. It's true. Yeah. And I feel like you've kind of written a book about how, <laughs> like what does a city organized and governed and developed along the vibes based economy look like? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I um, 
uh, I, maybe maybe the the um the the second edition will will have a new forward about about vibes but um yeah i i would say yeah you know how you mentioned it maybe maybe the a good way to to start talking about this book since this is a show about technology and maybe not everyone knows like all the hits the growth machine the um uh rent gap stuff like that maybe we can just like do a, a quick 101 on that uh because my, my book a lot of my book is um doing a a, a gloss a, a lit review of that and then seeing how um the internet and the attention economy have like supercharges or upgrades all of those systems. So we could just like run through a couple, a couple things there. Maybe that, that would get, help people get the most out of the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think yeah, okay. absolutely. Let's do a, yeah. a, a Marxist geography 101. And then I think that's also good because it'll give us the foundation needed. I want to get into some of the concepts you get into and build out in the book, advancing the, those kind of those really basics around like the upgraded growth machine, right what on. you call the thirst games and stuff. So yeah, yeah but let's get into yeah. the, the, the 101. Right. Okay. So, you know, like, we'll start with the with the big guy, David Harvey. Right. And uh, from him, I, I grab a bunch of stuff from him. Right. Uh, he's a the you know, if I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, like my like my whole left butt cheek is on uh, on David Harvey. Right. On his shoulder. Uh, and um, the right one is on Sharon Zukin. We'll get to her later. But um, uh, but you know, like the the I, I the idea from from Harvey is that um, you know we have a uh, uh, we ha- we have um, an uneven development of the of the world. This also goes to Neil Smith, which we'll get to in a second. But um, but one of the 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 big uh, um, factors of capital, right? You know, one of the things that they that capitalists have to do is find a place to put the money. Right, that that they have, uh, and actually, this is actually better articulated by Lewis Black, the comedian Lewis Black, than anything else. I remember, I think he had like a when when Comedy Central used to do those half hour stand ups, and like Lewis Black's one was like, you know, what, what, what the fuck is going on? Where like you don't have like uh, the government used to when everyone needed a job, they'd say, let's go build a big fucking thing, and it didn't matter what it was, you just everyone would go over and they. would Build the big fucking thing. You get jobs building the big fucking thing. You you get jobs showing everyone the big fucking thing. Everyone <laughs> would go spend money walking over to go see the big fucking thing, right? And 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 that is a a, a fairly serviceable explanation of of um, of what Harvey is saying here, right? That um, uh, uh, in order to uh, make the most of capital, right? You you get a bunch of money, right? Uh, and it's and it, but it, and it has to always circulate. And there's there comes these problems in history, uh, a marked one. There, there's like several big ones. Like one was you know um, when Napoleon the third is in power, and um, and Paris is like all of France is like kind of like going going is slouching towards depression, and so he bulldozes Paris and wages war with Prussia, right? And like both of these things are supposed to sink capital into uh the land either uh blood <laughs> of, of of uh young men right uh killing other young men from prussia right or um uh rebuilding paris right and these are called spatial fixes and it's and it's just what it sounds like you take the the floating capital all the liquid uh money and you fix it literally in a in a place right um 
in uh, 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 America after World War II, when it's like unclear if we're going to slouch back into uh, a recession or a depression after you know all this war spending, right? Well, we do two things. One, we uh, invent a new war in Korea, right? <laughs> so we do, we still do some war spending, but we also do a lot of domestic spending uh, by building a national highway system, by uh, um, building the Sun Belt cities, right? Like everything, uh, you know, like south of the Mason Dixon line through to California, these enormous cities. And this is all a way to take a bunch of money that's moving around and put it into something, right? And then, yeah, uh, I, did, I did my PhD in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, ASU, <laughs> and and it, it is it is interesting to see that like that is a city that was built at the same time as the interstate system was being built, and it shows it because shows, it's yeah. a it's a city that is wholly built um, with the idea that cars car this is a city built for cars, uh, and people just happen to live in it, like you know, like the uh, the uh, fucking Pixar movie Cars, if they <laughs> their cities literally would be just phoenix arizona's right yeah. and uh and it shows because yeah i just want to bring that up that like it, it like and we end up with um these big spatial fixes like a lot of this capital being dumped in and that stuff lasts it persists for a long time and so like you know our interstate systems are still the interstate systems built in the 50s right uh like these cities these sunbelt cities which are now and we'll get i think we'll get into this um but are like really the center of real estate investment right now is the sunbelt cities um but those are products of this like previous era of capital expense like you know you get these these moments where capital needs to dump you know do a spatial fix dump a bunch of capital into like hard stuff hard material concrete stable um things uh but then those things persist and they and they stay around for a long time yeah because like developers really are like a weird kind of private investor right like they they have a portfolio um, and they will mix it in with like you know stocks or, or or some sort of bond or or other financial vehicle, right? And it is actually they, they you know that they're holding this huge pile of money, and it's only when conditions are right in specific places at specific times that they choose to build, and it always has to beat them uh, some sort of market condition in the first place, right? So like that's. That, that, so that's basically the the spatial fix, and uh, uh, and then along comes uh, David Harvey's uh, student Neil Smith, who um, argues that uh, you know well you, you know you look around you see like oh well you know like spatial fixes seem to happen in uh, some places and not in others right and this is the the problem of uneven development you know like why uh, does America have a bunch of big nice fairly nice cities, right? Uh, why does, why is China just all of a sudden built like 30 million plus person cities in the last two decades? Right. But Africa, the whole, you know, the whole continent, right? Like it it seems, uh, underdeveloped. Right. And of course the answer is plunder and, and colonialism. Right. But, but, but why, like, why does capital take that form? Right. And Neil Smith's argument is that, well, it's actually the, um, the engine of capital is that disparity because uh, you always want to have another place to move and expand all of your uh, uh, productive capacity um, to either increase markets, right? Because you always have to be expanding. Line always has to go up. 
or you run into a problem like in uh, Detroit in the United States in the 70s where uh, labor unions are powerful and they're extracting uh, for the capitalist, just too much of the share of the value. And so they want to, uh, and there's a bunch of other stuff happening about, you know, like, uh, gas prices and inflation and release Nixon releasing us from the gold standard, a bunch of stuff happens that precipitates, um, the seesaw moving in the opposite direction. And so they start, so all of the, um, car companies, you know, move factories over overseas and stuff. Right. And like, that's, and that's the seesaw going down. Right. And then once uh, the seesaw hits rock bottom, right, in 2013, Detroit declares bankruptcy. And then, oh, gosh, what happens? Oh, the, out of the goodness of his heart, right, like the owner of uh, Quicken or Intuit, right? Uh, I forgot his name. This, this, this asshole, right, just like buys like a quarter of the downtown, right, and, uh, um, and employs many, like a, a solid uh, uh, not – plurality even, but an enormous amount of people in the city, right? But he's just like, you know, he's buying up the city at bargain basement prices. And that's the point, right? And he's, and now the seesaw will go back up again. Now, it, it all, you know, like they released a report that was basically among capitalists saying, okay, it's okay to invest in Detroit again. Let's go, right? And, and, and so this going up and down is a way that um, capitalists realize the profits because if things always went up in specific places, it would be harder and harder to find value. Uh, and, uh, and so you have to find these like new places to either shit can, right. Make, make terrible, uh, so that you can reinvest in it later or, uh, you know, build, uh, uh, build up as, as, as high as you can, because you know, the market's hot right now. Right. And that, so that's, that's the, that's the seesaw effect of capital. That's uneven development. And then, so, and sometimes, sometimes along with that, and you do talk about this in the book as well with the example of like Hurricane Katrina. Um, but also I think like me talking about the post-war boom, uh, and capital investment, World War II was also big with this. Like sometimes, um, a lot of fixed capital gets destroyed. So whether it's because like, uh, you know, an entire continent has been bombed to hell, um, in the case of World War II, as, as well as a lot of collateral damage in other continents uh, and 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 countries like Japan, um, uh, or um, a big natural disaster comes along, like a hurricane that destroys an entire um, major city, and then but that's actually good for capital um, because that kind of cleans the slate. It does what Napoleon did in Paris when you knock down everything and build, uh, you know, the, the Baron Houseman um, version of Paris with the big avenues and all of that. Um, you can do that uh, by, uh, through policy, you can do that through war or you could do that through disaster, but either way, that's actually good for capital because it cleans the slate to start over new. Because as you were saying before, like you, you dump a lot of this big money, you know, big capital into these spatial fixes and that shit's concrete. It's stable. It stands, it stays around. Uh, and if you're lucky, it appreciates in value, but often it depreciates in value because of entropy. Uh, you know, things just fall apart and degrade or they get obsolete. Um, but it gets really hard and expensive 
to rip that up and build a new or to renovate it and reform it. I was actually just telling my students about this. We were, um, I was doing a lecture um, about the history of hardware um, to, you know, in, in, a, in a class I teach. And I was telling them about like legacy computing systems and how like the original um, big capital investors into computers in like the 50s and 60s were governments and big financial institutions. And a lot of them still have those mainframes that still run on like second generation programming languages. Um, and and, and uh, the uh, legacy systems still exist. And it's more just, it's like an archaeological dig. It's not you rip out one system and put in a new one. You just build systems on top of them. On top of strata. And it's like, you know, uh, Pompeii explodes and then you build a new city <laughs> on top of the, the ruins of the old. Um, and, but that, that's not very, that's not a stable foundation for new capital investment. What's better is if something comes along and destroys, uh, yeah, all of that wipes capital. it all clean. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, because then is like, this is the key of like the spatial fix, right? Is not only that you spent money and that you'll get returns either through rents or, or something else. Right. It's also that you've, uh, changed the, game of play, right? Like the board has changed and now, uh, everyone, and now if, and if you exerted the right pressure, everyone has to, uh, do it on your terms now. Right. So like you, you, you change the, the, the rules while you also put yourself at like the prime position. position. Ed has joined us, folks. Uh, so, um, Ed, would you would you like to apologize to the class? For being <laughs> yes, yes. Let's start the struggle session. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. No, so everyone knows. I um, I thought it was seven. I've had this problem a few times where Jason has reminded me. No, we're doing six on the weekends. Um, and I think I get it in my head still at seven and then I plan my pre uh, show uh, review stuff to start at like six thirty or something. And then that's when I get messages from everyone being like, and you were being uh, a good Luddite and yeah. you put your phone in a lockbox. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. I've started smart. doing that, yeah. which is been actually really helpful yeah. uh, in terms like you know all these VCs they're doing they're doing blackberries and bullshit I've been seeing them tweet about dude if you get a blackberry you don't get distractions from all the apps I finance but <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but it turns out an even simpler solution is to just put the phone somewhere you cannot hear or touch yeah. no matter how much I'm gonna start doing that but for other people I hang out with I'm gonna be like a stand up comedian and have y'all your bags <laughs> yeah. and be like yeah. if y'all wanna hang out with me you got Put your phones in these bags. <laughs> hand it over. <laughs> hand it over. <laughs> All right, we can pick back sure. up. So, uh, so yeah, talking about how destroying capital um, through policy, through war, through natural disaster um, is. actually really good. It refreshes the slate. I do it for all the capital. time. It's good for you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hey, if it's good enough for capital, yeah. it's good enough for I burn us, my house right? down once a year. <laughs> the insurance company still hasn't picked up on that. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> no so so the, 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 la the last piece here, uh, or maybe second to last, is um, uh, uh, 
uh, Logan and Malich, his their their work on uh, the City as Growth Machine, a book called Urban Fortunes, excellent book, came out in eighty seven. I still teach it because uh, we never fixed fucking anything that that book describes. And uh, uh, and in there, they, they 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 it's it's a pretty simple argument. It's that you know capitalists in the city disagree on a bunch of stuff, but they agree on one thing, and that's growth is good, right? And uh, they'll disagree on uh, how to grow or what to grow. Uh, but they are all in agreement that you should, that the city should grow in population, in size of physical plant, in like GDP, all this, everything. Right. Yeah. And so like that, um, uh, uh, and crucially, right. You know, like the people that, uh, are, uh, investing in the city, they go through several different kinds of, of capitalists, you know, some kind of fall into it, you know, you inherit your, mom's old house or something like that or whatever. But, um, the, what they, what the people that they call structural speculators are the ones that really matter because these are the very, very well healed investor class, uh, that can, um, uh, uh, they, they, they pick uh, real estate holdings, not just to make money on those, but so that it, they can have a better control over the regional market in general, so that uh, they can buy, sell, raise low prices in order to uh, change the conditions that everyone else is operating into, right? So, they, they, they speculate in a structural way to uh, um, move the entire markets to suit them. Is uh, pretty much the the one of the last things that's worth that's worth talking about here. Yeah, and and I think this all lays the foundation then for for the analysis that you're building on of the, of essentially like you know all of these uh, kind of principles and dynamics hold true and they have been holding true for uh for decades right like a lot of these analyses we're drawing from you know you mentioned the logan and Mollick book but also david harvey's work neil smith's work like a lot of this stuff is decades old right this is stuff from the like 70s and 80s um where people you know really at the very beginning of neoliberal development um in capitalism and and then you have these marxist geographers really trying to understand what is this? What do these kind of like really intensifying and heightening um, policies? These, but also these kind of new changes in terms of um, the economization and marketization of everything. Like, what is this actually looking like? How is this changing cities? Um, and as you mentioned, like you know, the, these uh, uh, dynamics that they really you know, clearly are, are talking about, you know, David Harvey talking about um, urban entrepreneurialism. And I think that's also really going to be key for, for your book as well. Um, and what, and essentially thinking about how these different processes uh, have existed for decades, but they've changed in part because our ideas of what these things are have changed, right? Our idea of what an entrepreneur is, is now different than what our idea of what an entrepreneur was in like the eighties. Um, and, and versus what it was in the nineties, it's now different in the, in the 2010s and the 2020s, right? Of like, you know, it, it's, yes, you're doing entrepreneurialism, but you're no longer an entrepreneur who, um, you know, is just maybe like, you know, uh, 
going off to you know start a small business or um, you know going and getting an MBA and working at Goldman Sachs or something like that, and you really have this entrepreneurial drive. Those people still exist for sure, but a lot of our kind of cultural imaginary of what an entrepreneur is is very much influenced by things like social media. It's the entrepreneurial grind set, you know, uh, the the Instagram, you know, rise and hustle, rise and grind. Um, like that's what it means to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, a lot of these like more kind of ephemeral, again, like vibes, attention based uh, economy kind of modes. And and it's uh, your book really traces this interesting development um, of these like big epochs of kind of urban development uh, coinciding with like urban identity or city identities. Yeah. Um, and, and so maybe, you know, the, the, the title of your book, The City Authentic, is the name that you give what you argue is the kind of like third major urban epoch um, within uh, like capitalism over the last, you know, 150, 200 years or so um, uh, uh, of this kind of like capitalist urban development, urban identity. Um, and so the, the first would be the city beautiful, right? And then city efficient and then city authentic. Um, and so to maybe getting like getting into the city authentic, I think it's helpful that we're doing all this uh, really this this groundwork because your book is building a lot on directly um, previous work, um, which I which I really appreciate. It's like a really direct advancement of all of this work rather than what I think is. Um, a temptation, especially in a book like yours, um, which is uh, uh, academic, but also very much a trade book. It's written for a much broader audience. It's written in like a more kind of uh, broader popular style. I think there's a tendency in that knowing that you are maybe talking to a lot of non-academics and stuff to be like, um, I'm developing all of this myself. No one's ever talked about this before. Yeah. Um, or this is totally different and nothing's ever been like it. You know, this, the kind of disruption narrative, but instead you're saying, no, like this stuff happens along processes and it's, it's a development. And so maybe, uh, let's talk about what the city beautiful is, what the city efficient is to finally then get into the city office. Authentic. Sure. Yeah. So the um, every uh, twenty thirty years, right, is is basically like these new spans of of these different eras, right? And um, and in each one, the capitalist class takes uh, the way that they make money and uh, builds the city and finances the city with it. Right. So in the city, beautiful movement, which we could put rough numbers around to like, you know, late Victorian era, pretty much, you know, like 1890 to like 1930, 40, uh, 30 or 40. Right. Um, uh, uh, in, in that, in those instances, what would happen is basically uh, the, um, the frontier closes in the United States. Right. Um, and, and so all that money that used to go into, uh, uh, slaughtering native Americans and building railroads and stuff, right. And like new, new frontiers, all that's gone, or at least it can't do that as much anymore. And so all the money comes back into cities and it's, uh, and it's an effort to take the steam and steel technologies of the time 
and use them to build like these never before seen like enormous palatial uh, 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 monuments to, to to capital and Western civilization. This is the Fountainhead Atlas yeah, Shrug, exactly. Like especially Fountainhead, yes, exactly. right? Where like Howard Rourke is an architect, and it is literally like at this time period where the architects are like these world bestriding Goliaths uh, of of capital's vision. Yeah, and so like they, they're taking both the what they did to make the money and then they take that money right and and uh build the city right and then um after world war ii you get more of a city efficient sort of um uh uh scenario which you know like that that word people quibble over what this era is called i'm just i for for to make it nice and clean i'm just using the same nomenclature right so city efficient is where you know you're you're taking um the kind of uh, uh, engineering mindset that, uh, you know, uh, Mal Harris's book, uh, Palo Alto is, is describing very, very well, right. You take that mindset and you apply it to city planning. So now engineers are, um, uh, uh, using code and, uh, both, both digital, but also like planning codes, like zoning laws, right. To, to do a, to basically make Sim city, right. Now the cities are being understood the way that, uh, I think our generation grew up understanding cities as like, you know, you zone this for residential and then you draw the, the, the street to it. And then, and then, uh, automatically, uh, uh, little houses and buildings start popping up and that's just the market. Right. And like, that's, and that's the city efficient, right? It's it's trying to get people uh, from home to work faster and and cheaper and with less accidents and and, and stuff like that. Um, a lot of the, the the buildings built at this time are are uh, um, not architecturally thrilling uh, for most people, but this is also the time where you get like the modernist, uh, high modernism, uh, lot, lots of very stark, austere stuff that uh, doesn't have a lot of ornamentation, strictly because it's supposed to be efficient in the use of, of uh, uh materials and time and engineering if you listeners if you want a like like a prime almost satirical uh example of this google brasilia um, which is the capital of brazil that was founded in 1960 and it is so it's founded at the height of and meant to be like a a a a monument like monumental is literally the word you know, for this kind of city, but a monumental example of um, the city efficient. I also loved your your uh, your the quotes you had in outlining and introducing the city efficient movement. Uh, the reference to Holy Mountain, <laughs> because that is <laughs> such a that when I, I that reference came out of nowhere, and I loved it because it's perfect. I really I want to read it because it's so good. Um, where the um, the character. Delight, who's, the, who's this architect and one of the uh, the thieves burning the money goes uh, when we built this multifamily complex we made a big mistake we lost money we gave them small gardens and windows we installed water lighting and heating systems this was a wrong concept a man doesn't need a home all he needs is a shelter and then <laughs> and then, and and to like you know kind of kind of flesh out how this this idea of 
you know, as, as you laid out, a lot of utilitarianism, a lot of like attempts to make it seem like there's this commitment to people, but it's also very stark, very cramped, uh, very, very, uh, very antithetical, I guess, to like what the ethos of what some of the people might have been harping on about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so like, that's part of it. Right. But the other half of it is mm-hmm. actually like gross consumerism. Right. And actually, you know, like going mm-hmm. to the mall mm-hmm. and filling up your ranch style house with everything from Radio Shack and, and Foot Locker. Right. Um, and, and this is, this is also why I, um, I, I make gratuitous use of, um, the 1986, uh, talking heads movie, true stories, which everyone that I show mm-hmm. that movie to absolutely hates, which I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard sell. It's, it's an, it's an eighties musical about urban planning, basically. <laughs> so, like, I can't, like, mm-hmm. It's understandable that no one actually likes this movie. Truly a movie yeah. does built a made for one yeah, person. And it's me. Unfortunately, yeah. that one person found yeah. it and put it in their book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was pretty lucky about that. But, um, yeah, but, but there, you know, like it, John Goodman, his first starring role, believe it or not, right? It's like walking down this uh, um, this mall with with a um, uh, 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 Talking Heads guy, David Byrne, and, uh, and you know, he's just you know they're just like pointing out all these different things that like you know you can take and bring into your house and make it your own, but they're also saying like. It, like if people are starting to not care if they go to a funky old building downtown or a bra- or the brand new mall that was just built to buy these things all that matters is that you're consuming and that you do it in in an, in an efficient way right and and so th- all that's to say that the city authentic is a re- a reaction to this i i do i i and i uh, I, 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 I'm pretty explicit in the idea that the city authentic is a reactionary movement in many, many ways, right? Like a lot, it, it, the, the stuff that it creates is very attractive to liberal minded kind of, uh, egalitarian, um, uh, uh, of like urban, urban kind of folks, right? Like young people, like that, that's a lot of people like it, but underneath it, I think is actually a very, pernicious kind of gross, uh, reactionary politics to it that we can get into later. But so like this third, this third movement, right? So we had steel and steam, then we had code and law and efficiency, and now we have, uh, social media and smartphones, right? And, and we're, and you can't build a city with those things like literally, but you can attract attention that then brings the money and the population that then triggers uh, the growth machine, right? It can continue, it can, can grow the, the city, uh, larger, better, faster, stronger. Right. Um, yeah. hey, David, I'm, I'm not, I'm not usually one to contradict my guests, but if you can build a city on rock and roll, you can sure as hell build a city on, on social media and content. <laughs> I, uh, um, uh, 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 rest, uh, RIP, uh, real life magazine, but I, I had a, uh, there was a time I was really trying to get an essay published there that was called "We Built the City on Rock and Roll." <laughs> and it was it was about something <laughs> like that. But, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah they, I, I, uh, the the point with the city authentic, right, is that yeah, we're taking uh, all of these uh, tools that we've created for attention, uh, and then you build the city not only to facilitate that action, but you're also thinking about cities in general as brands and as backdrops for your own brand, right? And and all these things connect 
to create these uh, what I call predictably unique scenarios, right? Where things can be a little bit different. You know, we do things just a little bit quirky around here, right? You know, uh, um, it can be just, but it's safe, right? It's it's predictably different, predictably unique, and uh, uh, and so what what does that look like? That looks like you know uh, na- naming the the wine bar after the thing that used to be in that building a hundred years ago. Right. Uh, um, it's about, um, uh, I, you know, I, I go to the hardware store in my, my, my city. I live in Troy, New York and upstate New York. Right. And you go to the hardware store and they sell like, uh, tote bags that say, bitch, please. I'm from Troy. Right. And like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> Which makes no sense. Yeah. Well, it, it, can, it, can, it can have two meanings, meanings, I think. Right. On the one hand, it could say like, oh, you think like your tote, your New Yorker tote bag life is cool. Bitch, please. I'm from Troy. Right. So that's you're hitting the, the top of the market. Or it could be like, um, oh, you think you're just going to get brunch anytime? No, there's only a couple places because we're just like this ragtag, you know, like gritty uh, uh, city in upstate New York. Bitch, please. I'm from Troy. Right. And it's, it's hard and rough. Right. So, and you can, and, and it's, you can do both. And I think that's why that little thing like and, sticks and, in my head so much and, and why hits- they've been selling the, that tote bag for years. <laughs> so I imagine it sells. <laughs> do you actually see them around though? Like in the wild, do you see right, people that, with that, them? That's a, that's an excellent question. The answer is, of course not. Right? No, people yeah. buy them uh, uh, probably as gifts, or they buy them when they visited. Right? It's it's a thing that you uh, uh, show off. Not all the time, because if you showed it off all the time, it would negate its meaning. I think you know. Um, uh, yeah. It hits a third segment of the market, which I think is actually like its biggest uh, and, and uh, intended market, which is the like Urban Outfitters irony yeah. market. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it makes me think as well about like the the actually I was <laughs> this I, this comes to mind because they were talking about it on uh, one of my other favorite podcasts. Uh, your Kickstarter sucks. <laughs> um, they were talking about how like. They uh, they went to the uh, the thrift store, right? And so JF and Mike were talking about being at the thrift store and about seeing like, you know, and this is in like uh, you know Nashville, Tennessee, and seeing you know at the thrift store uh, the like the the old like hyper specific shirts. This is like a real Southern thing. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing these a ton and like, you know, living in growing up in Mississippi or seeing in new, them in new Orleans, but like people would, well, no more, even more specific oh, okay. than that. Like people, people would get like, like screen print, like small batch screen printed t-shirts made up for like their birthday parties. Mm -hmm. So you would get like 50 of them and be like, it's Janice's like 17th birthday party. And then it's like a picture of Janice and like, with like a really like, Big, uh, uh, you know, like a crazy background, yeah, like uh, airbrush or kind something of thing. like yeah. that. Yeah, like airbrush style, and then everybody would wear those for like the sixth, you know, seventeenth birthday party. All fifty of her friends or whatever, and then like eventually these things would just make their way to a thrift store. Right. And like, which is like a really bizarre thing, or you would see them for like church groups, right? Like the, you know, the, the 1997, you know, church, uh, bake part, bake club or, or, or bake off or whatever. Um, and so like you would see these 
like, which is like uh, also its own, this kind of gets to the, like the authenticity aspect of this, where it's like, it doesn't get more authentic than something like that. But then they make their way to the thrift store. And in a previous era, when I was growing up, you would see that and you would be like, that's fucking weird. Or the only people you would see wearing them would still would be like the grandma who got one of these t-shirts at her grandbaby's like 17th birthday party and is still wearing it like 30 years later um, because she's like, that's my grandbaby, you know? <laughs> but, but now there's like definitely a thing where like people go to thrift stores and find these shirts and buy them and then just wear yeah, them. Yeah, wear like a stranger's as, birthday like, these party kind of like, shirt, yeah. Yeah, like as a like a ironic kind of like token of like this is like this is southern authenticity that I'm tapping into. The, yeah, wow, that you really uh uh threw me back there because like I uh it was I, I grew up in South Florida, which is not exactly the South, but it's it's a it's a strange melange, let's say, of, of different uh, uh, American cultures. Uh, and uh, uh, and yeah, I definitely remember those those shirts. Like that, people would definitely make those those, those silly shirts. And and yeah, you're right, uh, Jason. That like these are um, that today those things are like yeah, little. Uh, 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 tokens of, of an authentic past that you can never go back to. Right. Uh, in the same way that, um, you know, like, yeah, they, they'll, we'll, we'll, you'll make, um, a, a bar. I, I, in the book, I talk about, uh, the Bradley, right. Which is a dive bar that then gets bought by like a local, uh, restaurateur. Right. And it becomes a dive bar themed bar. Right. And like, what's the difference between a dive bar and a, di- and a, a dive bar themed bar, right. Is, uh, is, is pretty subtle, right. It's, it's a pretty subtle difference, but it's just like the leaning in to like things that just used to be like out of convenience or necessity become like enshrined in like this, in like, wow, look at this. Isn't this interesting? And, you know, you get like this weird anthropological, like, perspective to it uh that and it it also you know frankly like signals to uh middle class upper class white people that you're allowed to go there now which is uh um uh which is a a strange dynamic also because you know like um christian gillibrand when she was running for president uh would go to that bar um uh, to show that she was like of the people right but it but it it, i but you know you could you could basically it was basically it was practically algorithmic that like of course this you know Christian Gillibrand would go to that bar right it was it's it's like the safe but still kind of gritty thing yeah. Uh, yeah i mean that's what it seems like a lot of it really is about creating these like safe spaces or soft play areas for like capital capitalist nostalgia uh in a lot of ways it's it, yeah it's i think play areas is is the accurate accurate term there because like I, I also give this brief uh, uh, little history of when, you know, the, here's some podcast on podcast violence here, right? But, you know, like 99% invisible, <laughs> right? When Roman Mars <laughs> did his, this TED talk about municipal flags. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen this? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I have heard this episode, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's an episode that he then turns into a, a TED talk, right? <laughs> and so it's just like, it goes all over the place. And it's about how, like, a lot of city flags look terrible, right? They just look dumb. And um, and he's like, well, you know, here's all the, you know, he, he, he cites a vexillologist, which is a person that studies flags. And, you know, like, here are all the good rules of flag design. And, you know, and, and it spurs this, like, uh, frenzy, 
especially in gentrifying cities where you have people who listen to a podcast like 99% invisible, right? They like the, 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 the gentrifiers listen to that show. They go look up their city flag, find that it is also ugly and then try to change it. Right. And what, um, and the, the, the vexillologist that, uh, Roman has on his show later does a study of like a follow-up of like all of these efforts and they're, they have like a 50% success rate, probably lower. And it's mostly because there's like these intractable, completely irresolvable fights over what the city is and who should be allowed to brand it. Because the leaders of the cities are very, very explicit that like, if they are for a new flag, they're talking about like, this is a brand that we can use to sell the city to potential new employers and, and like investment groups and stuff like that. Right. And so everyone kind of readily recognizes that a good city flag or, or any real, which we could really say is like any sort of like symbol of the city, right. Is supposed to uh, attract attention and investment in the same way that uh, a company rebrands a soda in order to get, you know, like new interest in it. Right. You know, like all of a sudden I, you know, Jason, you're, 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 I don't think it's, hit Australia, but all of a sudden Pepsi got rid of Sierra Mist and replaced it with Starry. What the hell is that? And I see Starry everywhere. It's like, you know, it's, 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 I think it's like a, the same soda, right? It's the same sugar water, but now like you notice something different and you try it, right? You know, like it's, it's the same, it's practically the same thing. The, the only difference is that, you know, a city flag can, can arouse a lot of really like serious, uh, uh, thoughts in people. I, either they they really lo- uh, they have some sort of uh, sympathetic feelings towards the flag, like the, the old one, and they want to keep it. Or most of the time, they're just angry that you're talking about it at all because cities don't have any money. <laughs> and like, why are you spending time and money on a freaking flag when you know there are potholes and stuff like that? But crucially, it's also because you know who cares about. A, a municipal flag, right? A city flag are people that maybe don't have other flags in their life. <laughs> Put it that way, right? You know, and they, they don't necessarily care about the American flag, right? Or or or, or several other kinds of flag. You know, so like now, so now all of a sudden you get this like cosmopolitan uh, urbanite against like the nationalist, uh, uh, you know, American kind of type, and 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 those two things, uh, you know, are never uh, compatible. They're usually pretty irresolvable. And, 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 you, and those, and the, the fight just instantly goes to that. It instantly goes to these big ideas about like who belongs here. Uh, do you care about America or, or this city? Because this city sucks. It's got, you know, it's, it, there's too much crime. Right. And, and it's just like, it always immediately goes to that and all of these different, uh, little fights that happen. So yeah, I, I, to, to yeah. me, it also raises something else that seems to be really key part of the city authentic is that it's a view of the city as a place that is rife with primarily design and marketing problems, design problems and marketing problems, right? And so, like, you know, we can fix the city and, 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 you know, fix the city in the sense of making it a, uh, a more conducive, uh, place for capital investment and for consumption, uh, by solving these design problems and these marketing problems, right? Like, you know, a design problem, uh, all right, you've got a, uh, a, the old aban- the old abandoned post office, you know? Hey, it's beautiful. 
bare brick walls, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all original inlays and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's historic and all of that. That's, that's a design problem because that's, that's, uh, that's one that's unused uh, prime real estate. Um, it, it is, uh, it is blight. So it is actually actively detracting from the, uh, the value of the area and the surrounding investments. Uh, and, and, and so what's the, that, and, and it looks ugly, right? And so, well, the, the, the solution then if we conceive of this as a design problem is to put like a, um, a old, uh, an old world inspired Spanish wine bar and tapas, uh, restaurant in there. Right. Yeah. And, and it's going to, you know, and you have this example of something very similar to this in your book, you know, from Troy, but the, the same thing exists and is replicated in every city, um, not just in the U S but this happens all over Australia. Australia happens in Europe, like all of that. Right. And so like, uh, the, the solution is to, you know, take that, the, the, this old building, um, put something new into it, but keep an element of that character, maybe even name it the post office wine and tapas <laughs> bar. Uh, right. And, and, and stuff. And so that's a design problem. Right. And then, well, the marketing problem here is, well, people need to know, the blight is gone. Uh, nostalgia is back, baby, and it's better than ever. Uh, and and uh, and and so you need to you need to market it. You need to build publicity. You need things like business improvement districts that can send out press releases, um, can post on social media, can contract with other professional posters, influencers, and advertisers to let you know. This wine bar exists, and oh, by the way, um, it has uh, two completely refurbished loft apartments above the wine bar um, that are available for for purchase or for renting, right? And like, and 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 a developer is building a new apartment complex just two blocks away from the post office wine bar. How great would it be to be walking distance from uh, a piece of beautiful, delicious history uh, in your neighborhood, right? Like it, it, that, that it creates this whole kind of complex of like design problems and marketing problems met with design solutions and marketing solutions. Um, and it all seems to, I think, really, if we think about this in terms of like political economy, if we think about it in terms of like what we talk about a ton on TMK in terms of like, like the, the kind of financial model of, some, of, of tech, of, of venture capital, of one that is like largely a fictitious capital based in kind of speculation, based in hype, based in vibes, right? In other words, it's really trying to bring like money for nothing, right? Or at least value without production uh, is what it's really kind of based in. And it seems that like a lot of the city authentic um, is uh, based in a like value without production model that fits perfectly in line with social media, in line with VC, in line with the the kind of predominant modes of like e uh, of e economic growth um, in the country, which is largely like the tech sector is kind of seen as the engine of growth, the engine of progress. But it's also a sector that is largely built on um, th this like vibes based economy, attention economy, speculation, fict fictitious capital, uh, and, and, 
um, yeah, as I was reading your book, uh, it really struck me how much that this is like the city authentic is kind of taking um, this financial model, which was in large part like originated by the real estate industry. So it's more of a kind of a homecoming yeah, that's a good point. for this, um, if anything, uh, but really taking it and giving it that flavor of uh, the the contemporary era of 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 social media of reality TV of influencing and 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 a, a, a strong nostalgia for a time when history had not ended. Yeah, would we also be able to talk through some of those? Some of these phases are, you know, I think key crux and planks of authenticity because I think those also offer a really interesting insight into thinking through like. One, as you know, some of the things that you and Jathan have been t- fleshing out and talking about ways in which it might look in your neighborhood, but also some of the things that people will pursue in pursuit of thinking they're trying to pursue authenticity, right? Or trying to reshape the city um, in some, in this vague, hard to pin down aesthetic that does, that, that turns out to actually do have like a concrete, I guess, um, yeah, it. yeah. This is actually what my answer when um, I'm in. Like, I recently came back from the American Association of Geographers, and like the first question I get is basically like, you know, cities have always tried to brand brand themselves, and you know, you always have these urban boosters that are trying to get uh, people to move there and and for capital to be invested there and stuff like that, right? So, like, what's different, right? And one of the big things that's different is that um, there's now a uh this container to be filled labeled like urban life right or like uh um authentic urban life something or experience right and it has a lot to do with experiences right so um Sharon Zukin the the other big name uh looming in my book right she 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 explains that like uh, it's kind of weird to describe cities as authentic at all because they're constantly changing right so you can't if you're going to look for like authenticity and like never changing kind of immortalized in amber kind of place a city's actually a pretty bad place to look um but what uh, but what she says is that what you're, what actually happens is that authenticity is, is what you're actually looking for when you say authenticity in this context is um, the experience of origins, which is a very, very powerful feeling uh, that you, you're touching something that was immune to all of the hectic modern life that's like constantly happening at you, right? You know, everything's changing all the time. And, you know, like the horse eBooks, everything happens so much, you know, <laughs> you know, experience. Right. And so, um, uh, so, so if you can offer someone the experience of like an origin or a starting point, or like, you know, something that, that really like touches grass, you know, then, uh, th- then you really have something there that people are going to buy, especially if they live in a city where that's really hard to come by. Right. Um, and, and so you, she, she describes it like authenticity as, um, as a tool of power. Um, because if you can utilize that, that, uh, story, right. To say this, you know, convince enough people that, you know, X thing is authentic, right. Then everything else kind of bends toward it because everyone wants authenticity and you've convinced them that your thing is authentic. Right. So what's an example of that? Right. It's, um, uh, uh, it's these, uh, 
in, in New York, it's these economic development councils. So the city is divided up into, a, or the, sorry, the city, not, not the city, the, the state, the state of New York is divided into 11 uh, districts. And the idea is that um, you don't have New York City competing with, you know, Schenectady, right? It's like Schenectady will never win, right? <laughs> uh, and so you, you, you set up uh, different um, competitions where you take the uh, the gentry of that region, right? The the richest people you can find in that region, uh, usually the CEO of a major employer or something like that, and you uh, take all of the backdoor dealings that they would have been doing anyway, and you just put it out in the open, like you just tell everyone they're going to go do it, right? <laughs> and then you go to and then, and then you know theoretically you can watch them do it in front of you, right? Uh, <laughs> can only do deals in this back room that we have with snacks and water in the minutes recorded. Please, not anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so what? Um, and, and so in, in those situations, the way that that works is those councils put out annual reports that um, while Andrew Cuomo was still mayor, was still, was still governor, um, they were they were awesome because they would always start with this groveling letter. To, to, to Cuomo saying like, you know, like, like in his infinite wisdom, he, he knew that the Albany region's main resources were it's uh, like authentic urban beauty and it's, and it's wonderful natural uh, uh, environments, you know? And so you just say like these like completely bonkers things. And, uh, you know, and, and but the, but the point is that these documents would outline what all of these rich people wanted and what they saw the, the region as good for. Right. Uh, and it would take into account everything from, you know, natural resources to urban infrastructure to history to um, the workforce and like how many degrees people have and in what, you know, what they are, uh, what the what the region is, is, is well situated to do. And then cities, uh, other companies, um, uh, nonprofits, uh, industrial development authorities, right. You know, just like all these different kinds of organizations would then pitch, uh, through, um, uh, like, uh, the, these applications, they would pitch, um, new things to spend money on. And then the, and then the rich people on these committees would then, uh, rate them and then hand them over to the state and the state would rate them also. And then those ratings combined would, uh, equal, you know, who gets, the, the money or not. Right. And, 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 and so when you look at like what gets funded, it's, it is, it's always couched in this, uh, argument of like the, the experience of origins, right. It is, is, uh, is a way, is a really good way for your, um, uh, apple orchard to get turned into a distillery with $500,000 of, of public money. Right. <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to tell that story. And, and, and so that, that's the way that these like very ephemeral touchy feely ideas about, you know, like history and connection and everything. That's, that, that's the political economy of them is to actually, is the way that they, tur- that turns into money, right. It is by telling these convincing stories, these experiences of origin that then, uh, um, at least a couple of rich people will be like, yeah, that, 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 I get it. I, I buy it. Right. And, and then they literally do buy it. Buy it. Buy it.
this happens in so many different ways and none of us are immune to all of them. I, I will, I will admit um, that I am a complete sucker for some of these like origin stories. Oh, of course. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, especially ones around food. Like my, it's gotten to the point where my uh, my girlfriend now makes fun of me, and she'll like point it out because like I love it when a food is from a place, <laughs> and all food is from a place, obviously. Yeah. But when it like specifically says that this is like, oh, these Authentic. are like Tasmanian apples, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like the like oh like because I can imagine in my head like like the place where it's from. And there is this kind of idea of like, oh, there's like an authenticity. There's a quality that comes with it being like, this is from an or a place. It's not from some like placeless factory farm or something like that. No, this is from like the or the, the, the apple orchards and, you know, outside of Hobart or something right. like that. Right. And, 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 it's gotten to a point where like, yeah, anytime we're out shopping and like a thing will say it's from a place. And in fact, uh, Kit Kat, um, so Kit, like the candy. Uh, American Kit Kat, yeah. yeah, Kit Kat the candy, American Kit Kat, uh, y'all, y'all don't even know the, y'all don't even know the tip of the iceberg of Kit Kat because Kit Kat worldwide is so much better um, Kit Kat and worldwide. also so much more variety. <laughs> I did have some Kit Kat in Paris. I mean, everything, I'm, you know, back to my shilling Paris uh, kick, but the chocolate there is a bit better. Yeah. It's a lot better. But, but there's it's a whole, se- there's a whole series of Kit Kats in Australia that are all like this is Tasmanian mint. <laughs> this is Cote d'Ivory chocolate. This is like you know uh, oranges oh. from this other place, right? Like they're all like it's all plate. It's all different flavors of uh, Kit Kat, but they all have like a place name attached to them. Right. Um, and we will like be out shopping and see that, and my girlfriend be like. They, like, do you want these? They're, they're, it's food from a place. I know how you love food from a place. I'm like, I'm like shut up. <laughs> but it's like, it's true. I yeah. deserve that. Uh, I deserve to be uh, drawn and quartered for, uh, for it because uh, I have been session. suckered in by the like authentic origins of the food. Yeah, that's why I like to joke that like Brooklyn is a flavor. Right. It's like, like, it's like, you can, like, you just like go, especially up here, right? You can just like go find like a jar of salsa or some pickles or something, and it will just say Brooklyn on it. Like, it, just, like, it doesn't mm-hmm. say from Brooklyn or like a recipe from Brooklyn or the guy that made it up. It's, it just says Brooklyn on it, right? Is it, is it, it bed stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a, like a, a flavor, basically. There's, there's a, a really awful um, bagel place in Australia called Brooklyn Boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brooklyn is a flavor in Australia, too. It is an international flavor. And, and, and I, you know, I point this out that, you know, like, because Brooklyn is an international flavor, right? That actually enables places like where I am up here, which I should, you know, while we're doing the struggle session, you're like, I, I, I fucking live here, right? Like I liked it enough that I bought a house here. So like I, if anyone is going to say like, you know, like they're a sucker for this stuff, it's me. I'm just describing, you know, I just, I'm just describing the thing that I fell for. Right. <laughs> which I, which I say, which I say in the first chapter, I was just like, I like, no, I, I fell for this. Let's, let's figure out why. Right. You know, uh, because I'm ostensibly like a smart, critical person, critical thinking person, but like, I still fell for it. So like, you know, like this must be really powerful stuff. I, I, I'd hope, you know, if I'm flattering myself here. Right. But, um, 
<laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's because uh, Brooklyn is like this worldwide name brand that places like Troy, Albany, Schenectady, you know, like where I am, um, right. can position themselves as like these hip thrift store finds, right? Like we were talking about thrift, st- weird thrift store T-shirts, right? Um, that th- that's that's us, right? Because no, he's like your your friend never has never heard of it, right? Uh, and so. Uh, uh, you're, you, it, so it flatters you as like this person that, that know that is a better, savvier consumer of place than the person that just fell for New York city. Right. It's like, it's, anyone can want to live in New York city, but you have these like strange, uh, and, and very specific kind of things that you care about that are more authentic, right. Than, than just the name brand New York city, you know, is, 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 is another, another selling point that, that, that a lot of cities use, which, uh, brings me to like another piece of Troy swag that I've seen is a, is a button that says, um, uh, uh, you take Brooklyn, I'll take Troy. Right. So it's just like, it's just directly, I, I, I don't want to seem like too, I guess, cynical and that, you know, like people should love the place that they live. Right. And they should have like some hometown pride. I think that's very important and, and earnest and nice. Like I go to so, the minor league. It reminds me of that meme where it's like, uh, you take the skies, I'll take the streets. And they, they beat major leagues <laughs> like, like any day of the week. I would rather go to a minor league baseball game. It's more fun. It's more interesting. It's way cheaper. Uh, and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, like I, I, I don't think anyone should should literally have a struggle session yeah. over like you know the, the 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 chicken and waffles that they enjoy, right? You're like that's not the problem, right? It's not it's not necessarily the individual consumer habits that that, that are a problem. It's that we've based our uh, the, the 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 richest country on the planet like basically does its entire internal development in this way. We're we're a, a rarity in that we never had a like a domestic development policy as a country ever. Right. We, uh, we never had like, like the department of the interior in the United States, like basically just deals with like, where's the oil (laughs) is what the department of the interior does. Right. But in other real countries, right. Like (laughs) there's usually a, 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 a part, a big part of government that sort of like determines where things should be built, what sorts of economies should happen in different places, stimulates some kinds Mm. of development, not others. Right. And so like the, 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 um, the capitalist bonanza of the seesaw, of uneven development, right. has some rails on it. It has like some sort of coherence to it, but it's never had that in the United States. All it's had is like robber barons that pilfer whatever they want, whenever they want with the help of the government who, who will sometimes play referee when two robber barons disagree about like who should die and who should win. Right. Like that's, that's been our internal development policy. And so, you know, today it's a little bit more, uh, it's a little kinder, gentler, but it's also like a lot more complicated in that, you know, like this upgraded growth machine now, uh, reaches further and is, and the, and the fingers get into more, uh, uh, do I want to say it this way? Sure. Why not intimate places, right? <laughs> where, where, you know, you, you get to, um, where, where like you get to a point where, Around here, I, I interview um, these uh, economic development professionals who are saying, like, we are ta- doing targeted Facebook and Instagram ads for people who went to college around here who now live in, like, Boston or New York City. And are, are and the message is, isn't it expensive here? Don't, didn't you have a nice time here? Why don't you move back? Right? 
and it's like that sort of argument is 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 both intimate i think effective and 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 far-reaching right whereas like a, a city of our size wouldn't be buying billboards in manhattan to say come live in troy right like that's that would be too expensive and it probably wouldn't work right but um but but that sort of targeted marketing very well might and and usually that kind of information, you know, like all the de- all the information that people put together about like why you should move to a place or like what the amenities are, are usually handed actually to um, uh, headhunters and like recruiters for companies as ammunition for convincing someone to move up here because like they, you can get someone and say like, well, you know, the uh, the salary isn't what you would expect, but the li- but you know the standard of mm. living is so much cheaper. Right, the cost of living is so much cheaper up here than it is down here, and here's and here's X Y Z things that you can go do when you live up here. Albany isn't uh, the punchline that you think it is. Uh, so much, so much good, uh, so many good points wrapped up in there. I mean, the uh, the the fact that like, you know. Because uh, in, in you know the interior development, urban development, regional development um, is largely led by these like you know small like these uh, you know what uh, uh, I, I always think about this great essay that Patrick Wyman, the historian, wrote in the Atlantic on the American gentry, um, and he's talking about it. It is the you know it is the uh, the the car dealership owners um, and and the you know the beautiful boaters uh, who have a lot of power in the U.S. They are not the you know the the you know, vast billionaires who get all of the attention and wield, you know, a supermajority of the capital. Um, but they are the small time, you know, millionaire or, you know, a few millionaire, uh, kind of, uh, people who have, you know, a, a, you know, who, who are all, lo- they are the people who dominate, um, local advertisements on radio and TV, right? Like, you know, come down to big gyms, big boats, you know, dealership. Big Jim is doing a lot of work, uh, on the, you know, the economic development council, um, directing like, you know, taxpayer dollars and investment, uh, and stuff that like you probably don't realize, right? Like people like Big Jim are the kind of the American gentry um, who are kind of setting the uh, the the in, the in, the industrial and regional policy for the U.S. But it happens in these kind of like you know uh, small councils that are largely in competition with each other. I think this gets directly into what you describe as the thirst games, right? Um, and and as well, like we can see this at varying scales if we talk about it in, in terms of, uh, you know, the tech sector. Uh, I just saw uh, re, you know, a few days ago that Amazon, you know, Amazon's, you know, put a halt on building their HQ2 um, because of the pandemic, but they have recently tapped into something like $150 million of subsidies um, from uh, uh, Virginia for their HQ2 um, to, to begin uh, again with the kind of construction of that, right? And so, but that was a product of a like larger scale version of this Thirst Games. Um, um, yeah, you know, uh, 
but that happens at a much lower level constantly um, as well. Some maybe you know, could you talk about the that that thirst games as well, and talk about that kind of like that 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 competition, that entrepreneurial competition that also drives a lot of this. You know, we've talked about the the kind of the nostalgia, the authenticity, the return to origins, the, the all the kind of stuff that informs what people want to do, why they want to do it. But I think the competition aspect, the entrepreneurial um, aspect really informs how they go about doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the the Thirst Games is uh, the name I give, yeah, to these competitions because, uh, you know, in in the uh, local media around here, they would talk about those regional economic development councils, you know, like that thing that I described where basically, yeah, the American gentry, I wish that article had come out in time for me to cite it for the, for the book, because it is, that's exactly what it is. You know, one of those rare Atlantic articles that uh, make sense and are grounded in reality. It was, it was good. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and, and so I call them the, the thirst games because I think it's a little bit more accurate for two reasons. One, um, uh, soldier boy, I think is right. You know, that is just like, she thirsty, right. You just say it over and over and over and over again until it becomes true. <laughs> right. And, and like, what, what does it mean to be thirsty? Right. It's that like you, 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 des- you're desperate for attention, right. You want attention mm. to the point that you are no longer like dignified, right. It's an undignified desire for attention is to be thirsty. Right. And, and, and also, in, you know, in the metaphor comes like, uh, um, uh, it, it will always come back. It's never like permanently slaked, right? Thirst always comes back. Uh, and then the second thing is also because I, I, I make a joke in the book that soldier boy probably reads a lot of, uh, Bauman because at the same time is <laughs> also like, you know, Bauman's coming out with like liquid modernity and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and with liquid modernity, right. Uh, all, all of Zygmunt Bauman's kind of writing is about, you know, how like, uh, the, 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 the actor, like the, the person that really, um, uh, succeeds in capital at this stage is the one that can, uh, move deftly and swiftly and, and like a liquid, right. And like fill its container and just, you know, like be very, very, uh, flexible, in it's in adapting to new situations. Right. And, um, and, and so that, that's why I think, uh, uh, thirst games also just like, you know, works better than, than, than hunger games because I, you know, I, I we don't need another, uh, um, major, uh, uh intellectual property reference. You know? So, I just, <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I, I use that one and, um, right. And, 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 you know, it's, it's in those situations that, yeah, you have, um, different, kinds of actors better situated than others to gain access to the, the, the piles of capital that and cheap loans and stuff like that, that are out there. Um, so I, I, I have described the difference between like a well-heeled, um, you know, like son of, of a, of a, speedboat salesman or something, right. You know, that, that just wants to open up a, a franchise, Right. Um, versus a, um, a, a waitress that wants to open up her own restaurant in a funky building downtown. Right. And the way that financing works in this country is that the one, the guy who wants to open a, um, 
a, a franchise, right? Uh, the bank can look at a lot of financials, especially if it's out in like that one of those out parcels in the suburbs, like where like TGI Fridays is and stuff like that, right? Like those are um, those fit the Excel spreadsheet of the banker very, very well. They, they can look at, uh, similar, uh, um, restaurants in, on similar roads. The, the franchising company has all this information ready. And so it's really only like a little bit of capital installed into that, that matrix that makes it work. Right. And it's very, it's very plug and play, easy to go with the, um, the waitress that wants to open up like a, a restaurant, right. You know, like restaurants fail all the time. They're, they're a very difficult business to, to make work. And, uh, and they're, they're very capital intensive. And if you want to buy a building that's, uh, uh, funky and maybe run down, right. Like that, that, you know, who knows what happens when you start like taking out walls and stuff, you find that the foundation's cracked or something crazy like that. Right. And so th- this is, uh, all, all of which is to say that, um, a, a ton of the really nice, um, authentic, right. Downtown restaurant stuff is, is more, um, it, the people better positioned to do that already have a lot of money. Let's just put it that way. Right. And so, uh, uh, when, when, when it comes to like these, these thirst games, right. It's the, the winners keep winning, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and they're able to reinvest their money into the things that are popular right now. Uh, because, because the things that are popular right now are rare because we live in a world of, uh, commercial abundance, uh, um, relatively speaking, right. You know, like obviously there's a, a ton of poverty and wealth inequality, but you know, you can go to Walmart, you know, just like look at like all of the shit that's in Walmart. That's, that's still fairly cheap, even with inflation. Right. But if you want something that gives you the experience of origins, right, that by definition has to be kind of rare and, and it's very, very difficult to bootstrap that on your own. And so it, it, it so what, what often happens is you get companies that want to make it look like that. And like the, the, I think it was back in like 2010, 2009, when this stuff was just starting to emerge, I pegged, I, I, I pegged the beginning of the city authentic at around that time. Um, you'd have like Starbucks, um, buying coffee shops and not putting their, their marketing on it. Right. So it was, it was, it was just like a coffee shop that gave money to Starbucks, right. This is basically all that it is. Right. Or, um, uh, this, this was also when InBev Anheuser, Anheuser-Busch was buying up like, um, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, Goose Island and like, uh, and, and like Sapporo was buying anchor steam and you, you see all these craft beer breweries get bought up very, very quietly and you don't, and nowhere on the label, do you see the major, uh, like corporate entity that actually owns the thing on it, right? Because the, these were, uh, correctly recognized as valuable strictly because they were not connected to large companies. Right. And, and so, and this is still the problem, but, uh, uh, that, that they try to work out, but they've gotten much better at it. And so, and they also realize that they don't need to be the thing, the, the entity actually doing the selling, they could just own the building. Right. And so it's, it, 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 so it's, it's that kind of stuff that's now become, uh, uh, very, very popular. So like all these hip downtowns are owned by, you know, a, a handful of people, like you can name, you can memorize. If you live in a city like less than five hundred thousand people, you could me- easily memorize the the mostly men that own most of the buildings that have all the cool stuff in them. 
Like I guarantee it. Yeah. And, and your book, which, you know, gives this really, uh, extended case study of the, the, the capital region in upstate New York and especially Troy where you're, uh, where you're living, um, you know, which, which is great because it is, uh, it is a case study that is far, f- that is the rule. It's not the exception that proves the rule. It is the rule, um, which is just replicated all over the place and not just all over the place in terms of like North America, um, or the Rust Belts. Like I went to, um, uh, man, I, I am just a product of the city authentic, uh, uh, or, or of different city kinds of things apparently. Cause I went to, uh, I did undergrad in Rochester at the Rochester Institute of Technology, which is, you know, one again, uh, you talk about Rochester as one of these um, cities that has really undergone in major ways all three of the epochs that you talk yeah. about. It went, it underwent massive city beautiful, uh, you know, a redevelopment. Um, it underwent massive city efficient uh, redevelopments, and now it's undergoing massive city authentic uh, redevelopments um, because, like, you, you've got like you've got these cities um that are that are the rule they're not like like new york or or la you know um london or milan or whatever that tend to be like no like our uh, they are the the master brands, as you put it, drawing from some literature and, and marketing um, that like, you know, they are they are brands, they are identities unto themselves. Everybody else wants to copy and be these places. But they're the they're they're the exception. The vast majority of cities uh, and where people live in the world are these places like Rochester or like Albany um, that are like more kind of like small to mid-sized cities um, that are constantly having to work on branding themselves, rebranding themselves, developing, redeveloping, growing and growing again. Um, and so they're always kind of both simultaneously at the, the vanguard of these new movements, but also trying to chase them at the same time. It's the kind of, it's, it's, it's one among many of the kind of contradictions of capitalist development here, where you can simultaneously be on the forefront and, and on uh, behind, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the curve. Um, but like, yeah, I, I think like, like talking about, uh, the, how, how this works, uh, really, um, you know, in this kind of extended case study of the, of the upstate capital region really shows what this looks like and how like, uh, precarious it is and how unstable and volatile it is. You know, we, we were talking at the top of the show around like spatial fixes and things like that, but these things are anything but stable fixes uh, of, of capital. They're always trying to chase um, the, the, the next thing. And it is interesting to see like what that looks like, uh, you know, in these ways, like, you know, we were talking before the show around how like, you know, th- this is like not a, uh, this is not a, a, a weird product of the rust belts or of the sun belts, but like, man, like you like go to like Melbourne where I live or Sydney where I used to live and you see the city authentic everywhere. Uh, it is all, and these are, you know, big major 
you know, master brand cities. And yet they are also completely enthralled to the kind of city authentic in really bizarre ways. I was telling you, you know, in the, um, in the, the area of Melbourne where I live, there's a, 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 a store, a restaurant that just opened up recently called, um, a waffle house. <laughs> it's a, and it's like a, a little like pop-up, uh, like waffles and fried chicken place that, that calls itself like an American style restaurant or American comfort food restaurant. Um, and it's like, it, there's nothing about it that is, it, it's also like, I, I told you, it's like a, it's, it's like a Lynchian distortion filled a version of a Waffle House. It's not like a Pell <laughs> imitation. Uh, it is like something so, from a different universe. Cause you walk in, if you've ever been, you know, I'm from Mississippi. Uh, if you walk in and you've ever been to an actual Waffle House, there is nothing about this, a Waffle House that had that, that were that remotely connects to the actual Waffle Houses, but it is more that like it, it that doesn't really matter at the end of the day because because the the it's pure semiotics, right? Like the the signifier is still there, right? Like they are selling waffles and fried chicken. They call themselves a Waffle House. Um, they call themselves an American style comfort food restaurant. Like it doesn't matter because it because it's in Australia. All it has to do is signify the origin. It doesn't have to relate to it whatsoever. It doesn't have to like imitate it in any way whatsoever. All it, it is, it is like the purest form of, uh, of like a fictitious value, right? Where like, um, all it is is it's, it's, it's telling you this is like a waffle house and you're like well i've never been to a real waffle house so i'm gonna take your word for it <laughs> and i feel you. very authentic for it <laughs> uh but like that's like that is such a huge it's such a uh, a bizarre kind of development strategy yeah. um here and and it and it uh it blows up in like really interesting ways as well I know we've been going for a long time. I hope you can stick around a little bit longer, Absolutely. David, because I do, I do want to get to, um, some of the things that like you have, uh, in near the end of the book in the penultimate chapter, you have an extended interview, um, with friend of the show, Taylor Lorenz, um, which is, which is really great. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, you've been, you basically built a whole section of a chapter around, um, this interview with Taylor and it's, it's a, it's really great. And I think, it gets to something I want to talk about more, um, which I also mentioned at the top of the show, which is the way cities kind of have to act like influencers, mm -hmm. social media influencers, reality television stars. Um, and this really comes uh, through in the interview with Taylor um, in the uh, example of uh, a city like Miami, which I think has like taken this idea of being an influ a city as an influencer to a level uh, that like no, that few other cities have, have, have it, taken. It, it's, it's a pretty literal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the mayor there um, uh, recognized that like, you know, what is the competitive advantage of Miami? You know, it's a low tax environment. Uh, it's, um, got several very large airports within the vicinity. Uh, it's got good nightlife, right. You know, but, but you could, but that's something you could say of most 
uh, large sunbelt cities, right? They they are built as low tax environments with enormous airports that um, connect to uh, um, you know highways and 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 uh, places of debauched tourism you know it's like that's what they all do right uh, <laughs> right um and, and so he's like okay well i gotta do something different right it's like like why miami versus austin or 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 phoenix or something or or las vegas even right and, and you know and his answer you know was something around like bitcoin and being annoying on twitter right and it's like yeah yeah that's sometimes you can just do that you can do that and and build your city uh, uh, out of just like being a, a, a meme, right? Um, and, and you know, you know, like that, that's a particular kind of character that will get that will do that. You know, and he did put like a lot of city money into like Bitcoin stuff, which is now obviously blowing up. So that that didn't work out too well for him. But you know, the uh, what's more common is something that like what Baltimore will do, where they will um, hire or uh, through a um, uh, some sort of uh, 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 like third party, they'll they'll just uh, uh, order an influencer, right? You know, because they, you know, just like with any other celebrity, right? They work with a booking agency, and they'll they they get booked to like be flown out on the city's expense to go like have a nice weekend in Baltimore, <clears throat> and uh, you know, and, and take pictures of it and put it on their Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and 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 TikTok, right? And like, and, and that is marketing, right? And and it's effective marketing because. Uh, for someone that might might live close by, right, it could encourage them to make the move from Washington D.C. to Baltimore. Uh, but for a lot of people, it can just raise the the generic profile of Baltimore and give a, an idea of it in their head, right? That they can that will maybe pay dividends five, ten, twenty years later, right? Um, I, I, I show my students uh, a um, an old uh, uh, postcard. Of with hula dancers on it, and I go, where is this? And they all, you know, and they all, you know, they can all raise their hand and go Hawaii, right? And I go, how many people have been to Hawaii? And obviously, not as many hands go up. And I'm like, yeah, that's well, that's marketing, obviously, but it's all, but like all places do this, right? It's like you know, before you go there, you have an idea of it in your head, and and uh, and or at least we, a lot of cities try to do that because that's the only way that you're gonna consciously decide to go there unless you're forced to right so it's uh, um you know, so, so c- cities are trying to do this all all the time through lots of different ways probably the most insane way that I, I i heard of was in new york city where like there's an apartment complex that like uh advertises that there is a celebrity in there and that you will get to party with her at her apartment in the building what the fuck we're keeping her caged up in the basement. Hey, for, we let her come out for the right? parties. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, talk about Lynchian, right? You know, like, this is... <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's like... It, it, That's crazy. Yeah, it's so fucking... <laughs> That's absolutely crazy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it, it's 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 weird. Because I remember this, and the person is uh, Tavi Ganson. Yes, that's it. Ta- yeah. Tavi Gavison, yeah. who was the... Uh, 
you know, uh, was a person who came to public attention at the age of 12 um, because of a fashion blog she'd started oh, called uh, Style Rookie, which then she parlayed, uh, I think, by the age of 15 uh, into a like, you know, like a magazine called Rookie and then parlayed into like a career as like an actress and a writer and an influencer, of course. Oh, my um, God. That's and- the uh, fucking teacher from Gossip Girl. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> God. What the you can party with her yeah, in an apartment. <laughs> in her apartment. Oh my god, I wouldn't even party with her in the show. That's so crazy. That's just that's just her character in the show. Oh my god. And that's why it's effective, right? It's like if that's if that's what most people <laughs> like know horrible. her as incorrectly, like as a character, right? You know, like people will still like imprint that as like that's who that person is. And like, yeah, you can go hang out with them uh in their luxury apartment right like uh, yeah it's um uh, another weird one was um Allison Roman who you know like the art uh, the um the 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 food influencer foodie kind of person during the pandemic she left New York City not only because of the pandemic but because she got into this blowout fight with Chrissy Teigen <laughs> and, and so she like fled the city. She had to like flee the city. Uh, and oh my god! And she went to Hudson, New York. Right? She went. She went upstate. And 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 she would do like the Lord. And there'd be these interviews with her where like the the first sentence out of her mouth in like four different interviews were all I'm I'm staying with friends in Hudson, right? And and, and she would constantly and she would mention like Hudson as as like a place that she enjoyed being. And then I went and looked it up, and she's invested into like four different restaurants in the county right and it's like well you know like there you go right like that's that's why i mean like she probably also actually enjoys probably what happened is like a real human allison roman went there and actually liked it and was like huh you know like there might be something here because if i like it people like me like it and i can also make people like it and so she and, and it's cheaper to invest in a restaurant in hudson than it is in new york city so you can get in on the ground floor more you know like um which is also why, you know, I also interview a, um, a real estate agent, a very sweet person, who um, is basically like creating a platform for like people in Park Slope to go move to Woodstock. Right, like uh, um, uh, to like do this rural gentrification, which is a really fascinating concept that doesn't get a lot of research, because you know with gentrification in a city, right? There's a lot of serendipitous kind of like walking around, and like you're like, oh, when what, what's going into that building, right? And you like see things changing as you walk around and are just in the city, but that can't really happen in in a rural place, right? Because you're doing a lot of driving and things are just kind of disconnected, and so she, um, so what 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 started happening is her clients would move to like Woodstock area and they would get on like Nextdoor or Facebook marketplace or like all, you know, like all these apps asking for things like trying to find, you know, like how, okay, well now I need to figure out like how to plow my driveway in the winter. Right. It was like, I, I, I used to live in an apartment and now I have a, a house that like, I need to like get things in and out of, I've never had to deal with before. And, um, and and, and, ever, and they would just get shouted down on the app as like a, a piece of shit gentrifier, get the hell out of our, our town. Uh, and so they had to make their own app. Like this real estate agency made their own app for their customers so that they could figure out like how to get firewood. 
<laughs> but, but that's it. talk about the internet of landlords. Yeah, am I right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's when you know the internet of landlords does get very, very literal here because yeah. because the, the, the particular form, that's a crazy platform. Yeah, the actual form of the city, right, makes gentrification easier because you can see more stuff and like things are physically close to each other. But um, but the, this upgraded growth machine can't work just in the city because rents have just gotten so astronomical that even developers are having a hard time afford like assembling all the money to buy plots of land to 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 profitably you know turn them over and so they're, they're looking further and further out to make a buck and and now it's it, it, you know it's going into like Kingston New York of all places you know just like these little nowhere places are are, are getting the attention of of New York City developers like in Troy alone, we have developers from New York City, Philadelphia, and Hoboken, New Jersey. And it's because they got priced out I of mean, their own cities. That diversity. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense as well uh, when you think about, uh, you know, like, you know, BlackRock has been getting, um, or no, Blackstone. Sorry. I, hate, I, got I, my, I hate got that they're two stupid companies. I hate it with all my fucking like, heart. One of you has to and change your name. They're not, they're not cool names. They're not like particularly creative. One of you change your name and they all have, like, I mean, and it's not like you can just like change your name to something else, like violent and disturbing, right? You know, like spearhead no, or something. Or please stop doing overlapping <laughs> shit. Yeah. Please. For the love of God. I mean, I hate it too, because it's also not an, uh, uh, an accident or coincidence. It's because BlackRock is a direct spinoff of Blackstone. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, like Larry Fink was working at Blackstone when he then went off and founded BlackRock. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, as like an asset management, uh, kind of, I like that. Arm. He was like, quick, what do I, what, what name, what name do I, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Brown wood. No shit. That sucks. Black. <laughs> Black stone, no, nope. uh, uh, rock, boulder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it's why, like, Blackstone is getting all this attention now, uh, as, as you know, because they are buying up, you know, so many homes and, and being such a big player in the real estate industry. And a lot of that is happening in, like, the Sun Belt and the Rust Belt. Um, but I think it is interesting. It's a really great point that you are bringing up here of, like, the rent gap kind of, you know, it comes for everybody, but also like the, uh, you know, the gentrification comes for everybody as well. Um, and so here you see the speculators being gentrified out of the areas where they would normally be speculating. And so they have to go look elsewhere, but also because you've got like such massive fucking growth and massive consolidation in the form of like, uh, of the black stones of the world, um, they are also extremely extremely active players in, uh, in, in these areas. I mean, in large part because, and this also goes to something else we started the show with, which is the, that the destruction of capital is actually really good for capital. Um, because one, the thing that really sparked Blackstone to become such a huge, like their whole real, real estate investment trust, their major focus on building this portfolio of properties, the idea of single family homes as a new asset class for investment. All of that is the direct result of 
the 2008 financial crisis, the subprime mortgage bubble, and all of these uh, cheap McMansions um, that were all over Sunbelt cities uh, that were going for pennies on the dollar, fractions of a penny on the dollar um, because all of the mortgages went bust. And so Blackstone went around and said, well, we got a lot of liquid capital laying around that we sure as hell ain't investing in the normal places we would. Um, and now there's all these cheap homes that are just ready to be bought. Uh, and, and they did that. And they created a number of, uh, uh, of spinoffs like celebration homes and these kinds of uh, companies that were, would just be property management companies um, to sweat these assets, right? And then from there, they were like, well, this is pretty lucrative. Let's also get into not only the single family assets or single family homes, which is getting a lot of the attention, but then if you can compare that with also their massive consolidation of other types of dwellings, so like uh, university dorms, um, you know, uh, uh, other you know more temporary and transient uh, uh, shelters, uh, you know, to to go back to Holy Mountain, like you know, their their consolidation is is massive, but is also far outside of the usual. Um, suspects of like major metropolitan urban centers um, that you would expect to be the places where they would invest their, their capital. But, and I think this gets to a, a real kind of prime thesis of your, of your book as well, is that like, ultimately what a lot of these, like what a lot of these, these schemes uh, of capitalist development are about is not only like creating good places to invest capital, but directing the flows of capital and of directing the flows of people's uh, money that can then be created into and, and thrown into the cycle of capital through buying stuff, through paying rent, um, through taking out mortgages, because then, you know, uh, that, that then is creates productive credit and debt relationships for capital and things like that. And so what, how do you do that? Right. How do you direct the flows of capital or how do you direct, uh, the mass movement of money, um, held in the individual wallets and bank accounts of people into a big stream of capital? You have to figure out ways to do that. You do that maybe by making the city a beautiful place. You add parks mm -hmm, and parkways, uh, and then that invent and then that attracts people. And they say, "Ooh, I love the vistas," or "I love uh, being able to take my family to, um, you know, to 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 the beach or something like that." Okay, that's great. Or you do it through efficiency, right? You make it a place that's easy to move and easy to consume, and life is uh, engineered um, to be uh, efficient. You're like, well, that's great. That really greases the machinery of growth and the machinery of capital. But now we live in a time where uh, you have to do that through your posting uh, and through your vibes and stuff. And so you direct that capital through the attention economy. And that means um, having good publicity, having good design, having all of the right uh, authentic uh, authenticity and origins and nostalgia and stuff like that. Like it, it it's, yeah, I, I mean, I think that your, your book really lays a lot of this out really, uh, 
in a lot, even more, a lot more depth than we are doing now with mm. case with a, like I said before, a case, case study of case upstate thing. New York that we've only touched on. Um, that I think really like in a concrete way throws a lot of these larger dynamics, uh, into like, here's what they actually really look like on the ground. And here are the people who are like actively doing this, right? Like you've, you're interviewing people on these economic development councils, you're interviewing planners, you're interviewing these entrepreneurs and these, um, advertisers and the, you know, all of these different players, uh, in this whole big, machine, um, many of whom are like, uh, are holdovers from previous eras, right? Like it's a lot of the same, a lot of people trying to figure out how to do the same thing, but in, in a different environment or in different ways. Um, because that is like ultimately the stories of, of, of cities and of capitalist growth and development, uh, is trying to uh, uh, remarkably static motivations um, powered by uh, dynamic means, right? Like always trying to do the same thing, but figure out the newest, bestest, greatest way to do that same thing once the old ways of doing it have died out or have, or their marginal returns have gotten so low that you need to go figure out something else. I mean, to me, I think that's the I think that's the story uh, 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 of 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 the city authentic yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that you're that you're telling here. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think that's 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 well put. Yeah, no, I I, I, uh, I, I one th- one big part that we haven't haven't touched on yet, if we have time, is uh, is memes of mm. memes of place, which I I was actually surprised had there's I couldn't find any literature on this. Which is which is weird, and it's like meme by memes of place. I just mean memes that are about where you live, right? Um, there, no one has really like written a ton about this, which I, I, I was I was surprised by, right? But um, up here we have a place called Upstate New York memes, right? And unlike all of the advertising and influencer industry that's uh, targeting uh, uniqueness and authenticity, right? Um, the memes of place. The audience is for people who already live in that region and know it very well, and it's usually using pop culture references to interpolate the place that you're in, right? So uh, uh, they'll use uh, stuff like you know the um, like SpongeBob memes or something like that to 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 describe what it's like to live in this place, and I think that's just like a very um, interesting uh, um, mirror opposite. Right or like dialectical different. I don't know what however you want however how, however academic you want to describe the, this this uh, um, this this difference where um, you you can uh, you know I talked I talked to the guy who um, wanted to remain anonymous, so I got to make a pseudonym, and I love making pseudonyms. So I gave I gave him the name Elroy McDaniel's, and uh, and there um, you know he's I, I I'm trying to can trying to get him, he was very patient with me. I, I, try, I, I, I was trying to get him to, um, explain the starter pack meme, 
like I know what the starter pack meme is, right? And it's you know it's pretty obvious, right? You know, you just like there's a collection of things in a picture, and it's just like start you know X starter pack, and all the things are you know are things that you associate with X. And I'm trying, but I'm trying to get him to articulate it, and he's just like, well, yeah, like you know, people from Gilderland uh, have a lot of money, and so they drive BMWs and have hydro flasks, and you know, it's like yes, okay, so what well, you know, and, and, and so what's fascinating is that like in in these moments where people are talking about the, the place that they both live in, we often use not the stuff that makes us unique from other places, but the stuff that makes us the same of, uh, from, from most places, which is our, our, our vast consumer economy, like all the different little tchotchkes that we get to buy. I, I, I don't know. I just found that I, I, I don't even know why I wanted to bring that up. I just, I, I'm just, oh, I'm just really <laughs> fascinated by it. Is that like in these moments where we actually get to see how people talk about, the place that they live that is being marketed as very authentic. It's actually what we really want to talk about is, is, is like the, the narcissism of small differences uh, using hmm. like stuff that are, are, is very recognizable to everyone. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think to tie it back in that like ultimately what all of this really helps um, and why like every, uh, every Rust Belt city um, has the same kind of wine bar that, you know, is like, you know, hearkening back to the a previous era of like steel and steam uh, or, or, or what, you know, in, insert, this is why I can also say, insert the example from your area, yeah. you know, right. <laughs> is because like the, like these things are, you know, it's, it's the, it is the, we're all different um, because we're all the same uh, that, it's it's not just a it's not just a hot topic slogan of i laugh because (laughs) you're you're all different or whatever but or you're all the same i don't know whatever but but it it is actually because i think it really speaks to um another kind of contradiction of capital yeah right is that like if 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 the thing that is valuable for cat for for growth and investment is the return to origins the semiotics of authenticity all of that but then that's great but you also need to do that in a way that is like legible right. to capitalist investment and growth and uh and marketing and the you know driving consumer uh you know demand and all of that um and so what that means is you need to do it in a way that's consistent and you need to do it in a way that is commodified and commodified. I think, you know, it gets a lot of like, you know, th- there's definitely a kind of like ad buster style of the critique of co- commodification. It's just like, oh man, that's just like commodified, <laughs> but like nobody, that, it's just like a signal for like, I don't know, man, that's like capitalism, <laughs> but no commodification is actually really important because <laughs> yeah. commodification requ- means uh, a, a vast standardization and consistency that like all of the grain in this pile of grain is the same as all of the other grain in this pile of grain um, because that smooths the uh, the cycles of consumption, of, of transportation, of movement. It, cre- it creates markets for these things and creates ways to manage and grow those markets. Like, you know, the, in other words, uh, you know, Cronin's Nature's Metropolis, <laughs> which is all about the, um, essentially the creation of commodification in the, in the Midwest in terms of like as agricultural commodities, the creation of the, the Chicago's uh, future exchange, like all of that 
ties directly into what you're talking about here with like the same, you know, fast forward 150 years later. And, uh, you know, now it's a, uh, a wine bar called the grain elevator. Right. Uh, and, um, but it's the same thing. It is creating a commodity an authentic, an authentic commodity or a commodity of authenticity in the form of, um, these, these kinds of like, semiotics of authenticity that it's all every one of them is unique but they are all also exactly the same yeah they're, they're that's the predictably like, that's unique system yeah 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 yeah, and it's it, it is a both a contradiction, a seeming contradiction of capital, but also a total requirement of of, of this is why they are a product of capitalism and not a product of uh, the Star Trek communist utopia. Um, <laughs> you, you start a chapter with that crucial question. How do restaurants work in the Star Trek universe? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that might be I my, know, I think I that think might that, be my last, yeah, the last chapter I, I opened with that. I think, yeah. Yeah, it's great. I won't spoil the discussion, but uh, David, this this has been a, uh, a fantastic, um, amazing, long, uh, du- like uh, a real double header uh, of an mm-hmm. episode. Yeah, um, thank you fact, for coming uh, through for this. No, of course, thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, thank. Uh, I really, really um, enjoyed your book. Um, as Ooh. I said before as well, even though we just talked about it for like two hours, there's still so much more in it that we haven't talked about. Um, uh, and so, yeah, everybody go grab a copy of The City Authentic. Um, how, oh, sorry. The City Authentic, How the Attention Economy Builds Urban America um, by David Banks out from University of California Press, which I should also say is where my book, uh, my next book is coming out from as well. So um, uh, very happy uh, to be joining along. I will also say that your book um, has one of the best uh, cover arts. I Uh, I love talking about the cover. I I love talking about the cover of this book. I I want, you know, it's... um, uh, uh, you know, it's good. It's good to be judged by the the cover of your book if if it's a good cover, right? Um, no, th- this is actually a really adorable story. Is that um, the, the illustrator is um, my childhood friend that we would we grew up together and we would um, uh, make little books. Like she would illustrate them, and I would like make the story. Uh, that's something we just did as, as kids. And, uh, and now she got, she got to do the, uh, the illustration for the cover of, of my grown up book. I was just like, I, I just, I absolutely love it. That's so fucking, good. is it adorable? <laughs> is it, is it so fucking wholesome and adorable. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is. Yeah. So uh, one other thing I just want to, want to hawk is, uh, um, my, my sub stack. I'm sorry. I can't believe I said that, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you gotta do it. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I started a sub stack to kind of go around the book. I don't know how long I'll do it, but it's basically a lot of the stuff that couldn't fit into the book. And I'm also going to probably do some, some new interviews and stuff like that. It's called other day. I'll, I'll give you a link to put in the show notes or something, but you know, the, like, so uh, 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 next week from the week that we're recording this uh, uh, will be something on, uh, uh, on looking at diff- judging restaurants by the culture, cultural source that they come from. So, so Jathan, it'll, it'll be like, you know, food from a place and like, and, and, and how like the place will determine like, you know, whether or not uh, the people that are in the restaurant with you, like 
influences the flavor of the food. I'll just leave it at that is, uh, is, is, is what, is what we're, what, what that one's about. But, it, but before that, you know, like we went to really like, um, heady topic of, uh, you know, uh, roots tourism in Ghana where, you know, Afri- where Americans, black Americans will go to Ghana to look, uh, um, to look at like slave forts and, 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 you know, uh, the, race in in ghana is i'm just gonna say really fucking complicated and just leave it at that you know and and the 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 experience of origins for this like you know like really somber experience is usually very frustrated you know so like that that's that's the kind of stuff that 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 that, that goes on that newsletter and i always keep it i always try to hit under a thousand words because basically you know you get it as an email and who wants long emails so you know they're always they're always nice nice and staccato every week Great. Well, I'll definitely throw a link into the in there for you. Uh, yeah. So everybody, grab the book, subscribe to the Substack, follow David on Twitter. All those links will be in the episode description. Because baby, we live in an attention economy. <laughs> you gotta direct that attention, um, direct them eyeballs to the to the to the content that you need. I, I've gone. I've uh, gone completely <laughs> native. <laughs> <laughs> I studied it and now I do it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again uh, for coming on and everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week as well. Um, and so we'll, we'll see you over there. Uh, and until next time later. Adios. Yeah, 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 yeah.